Hello and uh, welcome to today's Human Progress Podcast. Uh, with me is Dr. Clay Routledge. Uh, he's a psychological scientist. He's a writer, he's a consultant, public speaker and a professor at North Dakota State University. He studies basic psychological needs and how these needs influence and are influenced by family, social and community bonds, economics, work, and broader cultural worldviews. And much of his research focuses on the need for the meaning in life. We might get to talk about meaning of life a little later, but I think that uh, what I really want to talk to Clay about today is a new study, uh, a new survey that he has co-authored with a colleague uh, entitled 2021 American College Student Freedom, Progress and Flourishing Survey. So welcome, Clay. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Um, so um, the study uh, is divided into three sections. Uh, campus free speech and viewpoint diversity. So that's number one. Right. Then human progress. Obviously, I'm very interested in that. Human progress attitudes about the future and national pride. That's number two. And number three is economics and entrepreneurship. And we will just go very briefly over your findings. But let me begin by asking you why this survey why this study what uh, what compelled you to do it what were you expecting to achieve and find yeah so that's a good question so there's a number of uh, I'll, I'll try to keep my answer short but the, i think there's a number of things that inspired it first uh, as you know i'm sure there's been a number of groups and institutes and scholars who have been writing about talking about the challenge of free speech and viewpoint diversity on college campuses, the problem of groupthink, of you know, hostility towards those who maybe challenge um, the, 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 the dominant politics on campus and, and all of that. So, those, so there are people that do great stuff like FIRE, Heterodox Academy, and others. So we wanted to get into that issue as well, but of course, there's other people doing it. Um, in addition to that, though, we thought, well, these that that challenge of the, the campus climate probably isn't the only issue going on, and it you know, in a lot of ways, I think it's connected to other to other issues. And, and what I mean by that is, if you have an intellectual space or what is supposed to be an intellectual space but people don't feel comfortable sharing or considering diverse ideas or people are even worse. People are punished for, for doing so. Then not only is that a problem for free speech, but it's a problem for all those other ideas and issues, which, you know, uh, you know, like you, I suspect, uh, I, you know, I think that you need a competitive marketplace of ideas. And so I, we wanted to look at some of those, some of those other related issues beyond free speech, but we certainly think they connect to free speech. Um, so at, that was kind of our starting point was, okay, people are studying free speech. Let's throw some questions in about that, which is like you noted, section one, and, and see what we find. But then we wanted to do something, a deeper dive into, into students' colleges experience because we thought, well, if, if free speech is an issue, 
then what are some of the other some of the other challenges? And also, there are surveys from like the Pew Research Center that not of college students, but of just you know American adults that a lot of people are losing faith in higher education. A lot of Americans are losing faith in higher education. And keep in mind that American colleges and universities are a big source of, or have historically been a big source of pride for our country. People all over the world have historically wanted to come to the United States to attend our universities. They're some of the best universities in the world, right? In terms of not just scholarly work, but spaces to do very, very high level research. And so, um, so with that in mind, we wanted to see, well, what are some of the other things going on on campus that might speak to this issue of why Americans are losing faith in, in higher ed? And of course, there's a lot of reasons um, related to costs, the you know, increased costs of attending college, um, the political issues I, you know, I mentioned before. Um, but anyway, so we wanted to go into that, into that area too, to take a, or just to broaden the scope beyond free speech. So that leads to what I think you're interested in largely is human progress. And, you know, I, and I appreciate your, 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 your counsel on counsel on this actually, because if you remember, I, I reached out to you when I was working on this survey to get some of your thoughts on how to ask these questions, because, um, you know, I followed your work on human progress in your organization. And I wanted to know, you know, John and I wanted to know, what do what do the what does the average college student think about the state of human progress? Like we see your content all the time, right? And and we hear anecdotal discussions all the time of people think the world's getting worse. So we thought, well, college students should be in a good position to know the facts because they're taking classes and, and with experts on topics that are very relevant to progress, whether it's science or history or political science. Uh, um, they should know what's going on in the state of the world. So that's so we're like, well, we want to have those questions as well about progress. And then I'm a psychologist. And so to me, part of this is about if, if free speech is a problem, if students don't feel comfortable, if it's true that students don't feel comfortable speaking about certain issues, if it's true that there's a climate of fear or anxiety on campus that people, either professors or students might be punished for challenging certain views. And then on top of this, if it's the case, and we didn't know at the time, of course, but if it's the case that students don't, aren't really even aware that the world has been getting better across many metrics, then to me as a psychologist, that speaks to a, a not very healthy psychological space. And, and what I mean by that is we know from, from research in my area that if people think things are bad and only getting worse, and if people feel like they're not um, that they're restricted or constrained, that they don't have autonomy to, you know, and don't have the ability to intellectually explore ideas, then that puts them in kind of a, you know, what I would call it a, a psychologically defensive posture. That makes them um, not open-minded and creative and explorative and, and hopeful. It makes them pessimistic, right? It makes them um, have kind of a negative view. And so I wanted to look at that as well. Like, if what what are students' views about not just the, the state of progress, but what do they think? Is the world going to get better? Are they optimistic? Do they have a sense of agency themselves that their life is going to be better in the future? Do they believe that they can make a difference in the world? And so, to me, that's very much you know I, I'm curious about your thoughts on that too. But to me, that's very much connected to 
the issue of progress because in order for progress to keep going, <laughs> in order for us, you know, to keep the project going, um, people need to have a positive attitude and be hopeful. Because if you're not, if you're if you're pessimistic, if you're negative, if you if you're nihilistic or cynical, then you're not in the right frame of mind to be creating and building and persevering and uh, and and so. I wanted to ask questions about that as well. Um, and then we also wanted to, you know, in the third and final section, we wanted to get into, again, what we thought were related issues of people's views about students' views connected very much to what they're learning on campus about different economic systems, but also about entrepreneurship, which again, we very much see as connected to the goal of human progress. People need to believe that they, they can make a difference in the world through entrepreneurial pursuits and that's and they need to think that some of the big challenges that we face have solutions that entrepreneurs uh, um, can help can help create and so that's kind of in a nutshell the our thinking around the whole thing but so it's basically jumping off from the free speech stuff maybe other people have done and saying well let's take a deeper dive into what students are experiencing on campus and how that might be related to their their psychology yeah, that's, that's all very interesting and incredibly worthwhile. I mean, I haven't seen a, a, a study or a survey uh, that um, really went after in such a granular fashion uh, after so many things that I'm interested in. I mean, my interest in human progress really started when um, I, I realized that if human beings think that everything is getting worse, then what's the point of keeping um, liberal democracy and some form of market uh, liberalism you might as well, you know, try the alternatives, even though they've been tried and failed before. But the more I researched this, the more I realized also that uh, appreciation of human progress is also important to people's mental equanimity and happiness, uh, because, um, um, well, because uh, if if. Um, because when people realize just how horrible life used to be and how much better off they are today, then hopefully they are, they are imbued with a sense of gratitude and also a can-do um, attitude about the future, as you say. Uh, that's a very important component of, um, um, of human well-being. The fact that you know, we are not just rats or rabbits. We are intelligent human animals who are capable of adaptation and innovation. And that's obviously part of the third point of your discussion, economics and entrepreneurship, is that when problems arise, we don't just, you know, stare death in the face and expect uh, to be slaughtered or die of hunger. We innovate and adapt. Um, and, and, and so that's also something that will be of great interest to me and hopefully some of our listeners. So just to get the methodological stuff out of the way, it's 1000 students, right? Uh, across uh, where in the United States? Across the across the U.S. Which campus? Yeah, across across the U.S. So we partnered with a group called College Pulse, um, who you know are, are experts in fielding surveys with college students because they they you know they have um, they've made you know connections with universities all over the all over the country. Okay. And so I, I believe our survey. I think I have it here. I believe our survey represent. We ended up getting um, representation from um, seventy-one. These are four-year, you know, colleges or universities in the U.S. That's great. Um, 
so that's yeah so that's so that was our goal was to get a pretty and it's you know it's it's fairly yeah 71 colleges uh, and uh, and universities across the u.s and it's it's fairly representative i, I think um and so yeah because we wanted to avoid just doing a so these aren't like students from our university, for instance, like we wanted to avoid, oh, this is just some regional yeah. issue. Um, we think this does a pretty good job of, of, of capturing the sentiment of students um, across the country. Well, that's great. That's great. So let's dive into it. Uh, let's start with campus free speech. What did you find about attitudes of students to free speech? Obviously, free speech is the big thing arising from the Enlightenment in the 18th century. People should be allowed to speak their minds to pursue research uh, free of authority, free of suppression. The church cannot keep you back. Uh, government cannot keep you back. And the university is supposed to be the epitome of free speech. So what's the situation today? Yeah. So, you know, again, like other people have found, other or other groups have found, we find that there are, um, perhaps not surprisingly, some political differences in how students um, think about or experience free speech on campus. So, for instance, we asked students, do, so I'm just, I'm, re I'm reading directly off the survey here. Do you feel comfortable sharing your opinions on a controversial or sensitive topic being discussed in the class? And when we looked at liberal or liberal-leaning students, the majority say yes, 66%. But what's interesting is that's not, you know, that still leaves a fair amount of students, um, even liberal students who don't feel comfortable because 34 students said 34 percent of liberal students said no but then when we look at conservative and conservative leaning students only 42 percent say they feel comfortable sharing an opinion on a controversial topic um, so that's just one question another question is do your professors create a classroom climate in which people with diverse views would feel comfortable sharing their opinions so among liberal students, the answer seems to be overwhelmingly yes. 86% of liberal students say yes, the professors create that type of climate, but only 56% of conservative students. So nearly half of conservative students don't, you know, feel like their professors are creating a climate. And this is, but that's kind of a, that's kind of a theme. You know, we have a number of these questions. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of a confirmation bias. In other words, uh, when progressive students or liberals, you, you call them liberal, I mean, <laughs> it's always yeah. so difficult in, in the United right. States because liberal in Europe means something very different than what it means here. So left-leaning students, there may be yeah. some confirmation bias. They hear a view uh, and they think, well, I mean, this sounds good to me. I agree with that. Um, that's good enough for me. It's diverse. Right, yeah. No, I, I, that, I think that's a fair, fair interpretation. Um, because certainly when when um, other other questions we have on here suggest that that's that's true, because if if to the extent that professors are saying anything political or sharing their political opinions, students are more likely to think that the uh, that the, the, the professors are liberal. And we know from objective data um, from not from our survey, but from other studies that professors are predominantly on the on the political left okay and so i think it's fair to you know if you if you kind of triangulate all these different sources of data i, I think it's a pretty reasonable assumption that um it, that liberals are definitely there is kind of a confirmation bias where they're more likely to see this as like a fair and balanced and open um, space for discussion the conservative 
students. Conservative students don't seem to be totally imagining this because that would be another hypothesis, right? That conservative students are just imagining all of this. And um, but I think if you look again, like I think if you look even beyond our survey, look at other other data, other sources of data, there seems to be some some reason to believe, some good reason to believe that conservative students um, are right to feel this way. And then if I if I can bring up one other question in this area that I think also speaks maybe speaks to this more, um, which was some of the more, which is you know one of the more shocking findings I think, is we asked students if a student says something that other students find offensive, should the student be reported to the university? Seventy six percent of liberal liberal leaning students said yes whereas only 31% of conservative and conservative leaning students. So to me, what that means is conservative students have good reason to be, <laughs> to be concerned about um, sharing their opinions to the extent that they might be perceived as, as offensive because liberal students are reporting that, you know, three fourths of them are saying that, you know, people who offend people should be reported to the university. Now, I would like to say that um, since the surveys come out, I've seen a little bit of pushback on that question because the argument is that, well, it's very subjective. What does find what does that mean? Find defensive, because that could mean different things to different people. But that was that was by design like that. We wrote that question that way by design, because if let's say we 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 pick a specific issue that we think is going to be offensive. Well, then we're assuming all students find that offensive. And so their answers might reflect not just whether or not they think students should be reported for ending for offending others, but whether or not they think that's actually offensive. So I think it's better to let students use their own standards mm -hmm. of what mm -hmm. they deem as offensive, because what's important, which I think people who are pushing back on this question are missing, the important piece of information here is we're not talking about, we didn't say if somebody commits a crime, we didn't say somebody assaults somebody. We said if students find this offensive, should should this person be reported? And so to me, you know, that's 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 pretty telling that um, that seven, you know, that seventy six percent of liberal students think that the, the the proper response to being offended is to go report somebody. Um, and it's even worse if you look at should you report your professor. If, if a professor says something that students find offensive, should that professor be reported to the university? 85% of liberal and liberal leading students say yes, the professor should be reported. Only 41% of conservative students, but still even 41% is pretty high. Like, um, so in other words, the majority of students, nearly 70% of students think their professor should be reported to the university if they say something offensive. And again, I've seen pushback. I've seen people say, well, what if the professor says something racist or, and you know, my response to that is, well, first of all, like we're talking, the students are, you know, what kind of college experience are students having where they would imagine that their professor would say something so horrible that, you know, they should be, they should be reported. And second of all, again, I think this, this speaks to the issue of, a, a worldview where you know students, many students clearly feel like the response to being offended isn't to resolve it themselves, isn't to deal with it themselves. 
um, isn't to talk to their professors or talk to their fellow students, um, but to go report them. And I think that um, regardless of the subjectivity of the of the question, I, I, I think that that's a, a, is an important issue. Um, yes, so certainly. Um, going to authority to shut down an opinion, no matter how uh, heinous, is, uh, in my view, well, it's counter-enlightenment. The whole point of the Enlightenment was that we have freedom of speech in order to protect uh, views that we disagree with or find offensive. Not to mention that I don't expect very many racists crawling the hallways of American campuses. I mean, right. obviously the most woke and the most uh, tolerant part of the American society, uh, as far as I can tell. But that's very discouraging. What else, yeah, yeah. Uh, what else came out of the, of the first uh, section? Yeah, I think so. One more thing I'll say, I'll, I'll say real quickly about that, too, is that, you know, there are, I mean, I'm not, like, if you've read um, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's Coddling of American Mind, I mean, there are people that have talked about this issue about over, oversensitive students, but um, I think that, because oftentimes from, you know, kind of progressive professors, you'll see a you know, they'll, you know, you won't see a lot of sympathy from them on these issues. You know what I mean? Like they see this as like a conservative talking point, mm -hmm. but at the same time you see, and I'm sure you've seen this too. You've seen commentary where um, a number of professors supposedly privately feel like this is a big problem. Right. And they're, and I mean, this, to me, this isn't, despite the fact that it, it's more liberal than conservative students who are willing to, to report the professors, this should be, you know, there's another way to look at this. This, this should be concerning to all professors, right? That they're, because um, there are a lot of professors who will say that I don't want to, I don't teach on this subject anymore, or I avoid this topic now because students are so sensitive. So if, and so I think it goes beyond just the oh this is a liberal student thing. I think it speaks to an issue more broadly. Again, like I said, forty-one percent of conservative students said that yeah yeah that yeah should be reported. Not to um, mention that the larger the group, the more likely it is that there will be a person who finds anything, no matter how anodyne. Right. Uh, offensive. I mean, you know, when people ask me about how do I define human progress, I say, well, ultimately, it goes with my humanistic and liberal, classical liberal, European liberal attitude. Uh, just about any human trend can be interpreted as being as going downward. I mean, for example, I find the fact that, you know, virtually all women, well, not but most women in um, or an increasing share of women in developing countries are getting educated. I see that as an unqualified good. Good, but if I spoke to a Taliban leader, right. who might see he might see education of women as an unalloyed evil. So my point is that if you if 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 the audience is large enough, there will be somebody who will find no matter what offensive, and then of course you get reported to the authorities. And finally, on that point, I and I don't expect you to to. You don't need to respond because, I mean, I don't know the answer either. And that is, when did speech become harmful? In other words, for the longest time, longest time, for about 200 years since the Enlightenment, the understanding was that harm came from physical action, but words couldn't hurt, right? right. And 
now words are associated with real harm. Do you know what happened there? Uh, is there is there any good explanation of of that happening? Yeah, I don't. So historically, I don't know how this tracks, but certainly from a psychological point of view, I think there's good reason to think that some of this is perhaps ironically, you know, the consequence, you know, the unintended consequence of the success of human progress. And what I mean by that is as society has become safer, as we experience fewer physical dangers and people are more affluent and more comfortable and can easily access the things they want to, to enjoy life, um, then they have less of that stuff to worry about. Mm -hmm. And so their psychological machinery that exists to detect threat, <laughs> to protect, you know, to, um, it's still hanging there, hanging out, right? It's still around. And so, um, so they might have to be look for smaller and smaller things. And so, whereas, um, thankfully most students probably don't have to worry about experiencing physical violence, um, or experiencing extreme hunger. Um, now they can worry about, um, having their feelings hurt. So in a way it's a, you know, in a weird way, it's a positive, right? That, this is the level of um, threat <laughs> that students have to be vigilant against. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. Right. So that's one possibility. And if you look at, there is some work on this idea called concept creep, which is over time, um, we, we do kind of expand the concept of categories like abuse or racism um, to mean smaller and smaller instances of them. So where it used to be considered like, um, so like when I was growing up in, in Southwest Missouri, um, being like experiencing, um, like your, your, your dad spanking you because you got in trouble was not considered abuse at all. Um, and you can see attitudes on that, you know, that changing, um, over time. And so I think, I do think that's part of it, which again, it's kind of a, it's, it's a weird sort of a success story because it's like well now people aren't worried about putting food in their bellies so they're can instead they're concerned about maybe the wrong ideas will get in their their yeah. head um. yeah i mean i i do find it unfortunate but you know it doesn't i, I it doesn't sort of um, um doesn't depress me too much because i do realize that uh, you know human nature uh, is unchanging or at least it right. changes only very minimally and whatever uh, brain structures and software and hardware we come into the world with, um, you know, it's going to it's going to make us behave in irrational ways. Um, right. So, so okay. Yeah. So, so with that, um, we have come to human progress. So, right. what what did you find on human progress? Yeah, good. Let me let me scroll to that section. Oh, but we, may, you know, may, I say, may I just say how excited I am about these findings because I I don't think I've ever seen a study or a survey on on the student attitudes to human progress. So thank you for doing it. Yeah, I mean, it, like I said, we were inspired um, by work that you're doing and, and others are doing in this space. We're you know we're inspired by um, the you know this article that Tyler Cowen and um this this progress studies article yes yes so there there does seem to be kind of uh you know uh, maybe it's small but there does seem to be a, a movement within 
the classical liberal libertarian kind of space about not only documenting and, and celebrating progress, but really studying it so we can continue the project and accelerate it, right? And so that's one of the things that we're interested in here at the Chali Institute, um, which is what, you know, the, the institute that conducted the survey that um, John, my you know, collaborator, is the director of. We're very much interested in, in, in that. That's part of our mission here at, at our university and so, but to, to so to pursue that mission, it's like, well, we need to get a sense of what students are thinking about it, because it could be that we did the survey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of leading here before I, I get into the data, but it could be we did the survey. We had no idea what we we're going to find. And we could be like high-fiving each other right now, right, um, over Zoom, because we could be like, look, students are really, really aware that things have gotten a lot better, and they're extremely optimistic. They see themselves as very agentic and you know capable of making a difference in the world, and it could be a, a great success. And then you know, then we'd feel like, okay, well, we need to keep that going. Like we're we're doing a pretty good job of of educating and energizing students. Um, or it could go the other way, which unfortunately is is a bit more <laughs> the direction it went. I think it is a mix, but um, so we can get into. Um, we can get into some of those details. One thing I will say real quick, not to return to the previous topic, but when I said that this is part of human nature um, to become perhaps more sensitive to different threats, I think I should also just throw out there, there is another possibility that people have proposed. And I think both can be, can, can exist at the same time. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, and the other possibility is that there is a, there is a, there's a like an ideological like strategic component of saying speech harms because if you control if you largely dominate a, um, a space like academia um, so if, if it's largely dominated by progressives and they can figure out a way to say well there's certain ideas that we don't want talked about not because we're afraid that students might believe them but it might harm them then that's kind of a, a, a tactic, right, to um, to regulate speech under the guise of protect, protection, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that can happen at the same time. In fact, they might work well together. The idea that these concepts have, there's a concept creep, and now we're, people are more and more sensitive to, to, to the potential speech harm, that can work in concert with, well, we can, in a way, weaponize that and use that as a tactic to say, well, you're not allowed to talk about this um, because that's harmful. Well, it's the path of least resistance, right? right. You yeah. basically say, why on earth should I contend with, uh, contend with uh, these ideas, which I don't like, I'm just going right. to call them evil and that way they're not worth discussing. Right, exactly. So anyway, not to, not to return to that issue, but I do think, you know, I wanted to make sure that I think that those two things, you know, there's more, and there's probably other explanations as well, but, but, you know, that's relevant, I think, because um, to these other topics that we're going to talk about, because usually people give the example of something really severe, like, well, we don't want students saying something horribly racist. No one should have to tolerate that. That's usually what people, you know, the example people will use. But then what you find out, and I'm sure you've read this in places too, 
people start pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing to where things like well, capitalism is you know, advocating for free markets is harmful. Um, because well, those are even even racist. I mean, I've seen right, racist, right? capitalism is racist and all sorts of other things. Yeah. So I think that's the problem, which, again, defender people who defend free speech, they know that's where that stuff goes. So it's not, you know, it's not like, oh, well, people just because one thing will say, well, people just want to be the people who are talking about this stuff are just trying to, you know, defend racist speech. And it's like, no, that's not the point at all. They're just trying to defend speech because we know people will then start to say, well, that's harmful and that's bad. Um, and, and so, yeah. So anyway, that, you know, not to read. So, so, so you so if let's say that you are just to be clear, because, you know, we live in stupid times and a lot of people uh, misunderstand what people are saying. All that we are saying is that a word like racist or or not uh, or fascist uh, in, in the in the years gone by, if that can be attached to a different to another concept then it can serve yeah. as a brilliant way of eliminating the need to discuss a certain concept, right? Right. Um, so if you if you call anything from from real racism, such as, you know, discrimination right. in, in public sphere uh, against people of different colors. But if you use that concept racism to attach to a, an economic system like capitalism right. or free trade or globalization or whatever, then um, then then you are essentially uh, you are on a higher moral ground. Right. You, it's more difficult to dislodge your ideas, even if they are wrong, because there is this totemic um, right. barrier around it, which surrounds that that particular word. Um, okay. Right. Yeah. And and people might be like, "Oh, you're you're being paranoid and you're exaggerating," but there are, there are absolutely cases of this. Like you said, people have argued that. Um, capitalism is racist. People have, have proposed that. Um, there are training documents at certain universities where they have examples of lists of, um, you've heard of this term microaggression, yes. right? Yes, of course. Um, where saying something like America's the land of opportunity is considered a microaggression. Right. So again, things like that, somebody could disagree. You could say America's the land of opportunity and somebody could make a case against that if they wanted to. And everyone should be free to have that discussion. But like you were suggesting, what, what often happens is people say, well, that's that's not something you should say at all. Mm -hmm. Because what you're saying, because they've attached it to racism or white supremacy or, you know, all those ideas. And so that seems to be those things seem to be kind of working, um, working together intentionally, unintentionally. That seems to be what's happening. So. So, yeah. And I think that that's not unrelated to these other topics, because if you want to talk about human progress, if you want to talk openly about different types of economic systems that might contribute to or harm human progress, then that first section we talked about free speech matters, right? Because you, the, the free speech and viewpoint diversity is, is that's the, that's how you create the space to talk about all these other ideas. Um, so, so if you, or we can get into the, um, we can get into the, the progress stuff if you want. I, I would say let's briefly um, talk about the attitudes to human progress, attitudes about the future, and also uh, attitudes to the United States, um, and then we'll move on to section three. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so we asked students um, in terms of progress. Let me find the question. Um, 
so this is, and we gave, in this case, we did give specific examples because progress could mean lots of things to lots of people, right? So we used, you know, ideas that people like you have, have done such a good job of, of documenting. So based on what you have learned in college so far, do you think the world has generally been getting better or worse over the last 50 years, considering issues such as extreme poverty, life expectancy, hunger, and literacy? Again, so we wanted to provide concrete examples. And what we found is, unlike in the first section where we found these differences by political groups, as we already discussed, we found very few differences between conservatives and liberals, such that only about half of liberals and only about half of conservatives think that the world has been getting better. Wow. Um, and so nearly half of students um, do not think the world, they either think it's been getting worse or they think it hasn't changed at all. Um, and so that was, again, if, we'd, if we wouldn't have given them specific examples, you can imagine, well, maybe some students think that the decline of religion is, means the world's getting worse. Or maybe students think, well, there's more pollution or whatever the case. But we gave them specific issues that are demonstrably getting better. And half of them don't seem to be aware of that. And also, I should say that the way the question is worded, we it, it's worded specifically to connect to their college experience, because we said, based on what you have learned in college so far. So we did that on, on purpose. Of course, we don't know that, you know, we don't know for sure where students are getting these ideas, but we did try to anchor it to their college experience as opposed to their own guess or their own intuitions or, or whatever. And on the specifics, which is absolute poverty, literacy, and the third was? Um, um, hunger and... We did so, yeah. We did extreme poverty, life expectancy, um, hunger, and literacy. Right. And on all these things, where I can show, and countless other people around the world can show that things have been improving, only 50% of conservatives and 50% of liberals believe that the world is getting better. Fascinating. Correct. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, correct. So, that, and but so again, if you want to look for a, a, a positive, to me, that means that that, well, that's something that we could, assuming we could convince you know, colleges to do something, that seems like a very actionable item, right? We can say, we need to do a better job educating students about the state of progress. It's also encouraging in a sense that a larger proportion of conservatives and liberals um, believe that the world is getting better than the population as a whole. So, um, you know, um, I, I can't remember exactly the, the, the stats that I have seen, but, but uh, uh, the, the population in general is even worse informed oh, okay. about these trends. And so, um, you know, if you asked an average American, the, the, the proportion would be lower. So that's, in, in a sense, it's encouraging. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting. Yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. So that's good to have that comparison. So then, like I noted in, in our, uh, when we first started talking, I, you know, to me as a psychologist, how you think about the state of progress is, you know, matters for your overall worldview, not just about the present, but the future, right? You look to the past and to, and to the present as having some kind of direction for how things are going to go. Um, so then we ask students, based on what you've learned in college so far, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the world? And this is an even more depressing <laughs> um, finding because again we didn't find differences between political groups so this isn't a left versus right thing 
in general, only about a quarter of students, 27% of liberals and 23% of conservatives um, are optimistic about the future of the world. Wow. Um, so they're, um, so they're either more likely to be pessimistic or to be neutral. Um, so yeah, that lack of optimism, you know, to say only a quarter of students are optimistic. And, 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 and to me, again, if you look at, if you look at all the outside, you know, if, so if you bring in all the data on how few people in the world even get to live in the United States, how few people in the world get to attend college in the United States, when people talk about the concept of privilege, it's a big privilege to be a university student um, in the United States, right? That it's a privilege that the majority of the world doesn't get to enjoy. So these students, they're, in my opinion, their baseline bias should be optimistic, right? Their baseline bias should be like, I, you know, in other words, it shouldn't be the case that, well, they're just they're just down on their luck. And so it's hard for them to, to feel optimism about anything. Um, these are the people that um, I think objectively are some of the most privileged people on, on the, on the planet. Like to me, they're the ones that should be more optimistic. Um, now I've seen studies suggesting that people always uh, uh, underestimate the, uh, the, the good fortune or um, uh, happiness of other people as opposed to their own. Is that what you find? In other words, it's possible yeah, yeah. that students have a very pessimistic attitude about the future of the world, but they all expect their own personal futures to be very good. Yeah, okay, that's a good, so we can, so let me scroll down to that question. Um, we do have a question about that. Um, let me find it. Um, okay, so, Based on what you have learned in college so far, are you optimistic or pessimistic about your own future, right? And so it's true that students are more optimistic about their own future, but we're only at around 50%. Wow. So, and again, it doesn't really matter, conservative or liberal. So 50% of liberals say they're optimistic about their future. 54% of conservatives say they're optimistic about their future. So, yeah, it's more um, than the other number, but in, in a lot of ways, it should be higher, I think, right? It should be the vast majority of students because, so connecting it back to what you what you said earlier about progress and um, people's psychology about progress. If you think the world is getting better, um, if you have an accurate knowledge of that, then to me, that would inspire a sense of gratitude, as you noted, and even a sense of um, duty or debt, maybe. Like people came before me and they struggled and they built a society that now I get to enjoy. Safety, clean water, um, electricity, um, the ability to go out and do things, the ability to have same day delivery from Amazon or whatever it is that, that makes you happy. And that should inspire a sense of, of not only gratitude, but these, you know, the downstream uh, um, psychology of gratitude is optimism, right? It's like, I'm very, very thankful. That makes me appreciate what I have. And it makes me more um, feel better about my, you know, my ability to live a good life and other people's abilities to live a good life. 
So one other question I'll, I'll, I'll share with you related to that is, you know, I'm very interested in, in, in agency. And, you know, you, you did a good job talking about humans as a unique organism that has the ability to think, right, critically, to, to navigate information in ways that other organisms can't, um, to think, and, and this relates to all sorts of high-level um, consciousness, our ability to self-reflect and to think about the future and the past, and abstractly and symbolically. And so agency is a big theme of how progress works, right? Like you and I can identify a problem and then we can say, well, let's work on it. Like let's, let's figure something out and we can use our brains, right? So like a vaccine, to, like a vaccine for COVID, for example. Correct, right? Yeah. We, yeah. So this is important, right? So in order to do that, though, you need to feel like you can do something. Right. Right. Because if you're just like, I can't, what am I going to do? Um, then you're not going to do anything. <laughs> so we asked, based on what you have learned in college so far, are you optimistic or pessimistic about your ability to make a difference in the world? So this is not just I'm optimistic about my future because you could, I guess, be optimistic about your future and feel like my parents are just going to give me lots of money and I'm going to like I could just be optimistic because I feel like I'm in a good space. But what I'm interested, what we were interested in is, are you optimistic about your agency, like your ability to do something based on what you've learned in college? And again, we found no difference between conservatives and liberals, but only 43 percent of liberals and only 42% of conservatives said they are optimistic about their ability to make a difference in the world. So the majority, you know, so the majority of students are not optimistic about their own ability to, you know, to have a positive impact uh, on the world. That's very interesting. Uh, it reminds me of similar studies have been done um, comparing European attitudes and American attitudes to sort of can doism and uh, personal agency and and I was aware that in Europe people feel a uh, lack of ability to impact the system um, the, the, much more so than in the United States um, and, uh, and, uh, and it's, um, it's, it's very interesting that it's so widespread at the college level and there are no political differences so that's a very interesting piece of information yeah yeah I think so I mean, in a, in, a, in a weird way, the the lack of political differences is is helpful. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the first section on free speech and you see these these differences, if those differences had persisted throughout the survey, um, the one alternative explanation I think is that it, when I mean persisted, I mean if you had liberal students being very optimistic. And, feeling like progress is great and conservative students not, um, then, you know, one alternative explanation is, well, this is just not a great environment for conservative students for whatever reason, you know, maybe they feel restrained and defensive and like that's not a space for them, but for liberal students, it's a great space and they're allowed to really flourish, right? But that's not what we found, right? Um, what we The differences, you know, between the first and the section section to me again i'm not speculating here um the differences speak to well it's true that there seems to be some some free speech and viewpoint diversity problems on campus where conservatives feel less comfortable 
But then there seems to be a bigger challenge that has um, that isn't just about that, right? Um, because we have very, you know, very small or no differences at all between conservatives and liberal students on these issues related to progress. So it speaks to some some form of a negativity bias. Yeah. And uh, and then the key here is to identify why is it that uh, uh, what is it forty four percent of people don't believe that they can impact the world in a positive right. way, but sixty five percent do. What's the difference between them? It would be interesting to give uh, some sort of psychological tests to representative samples from both sides and see right. if, if, for example, people who um, uh, people who who are more can doish, whether they have a different set of big five personality characteristics than 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 others. Am I am I getting warm? Uh, am I getting in the right direction? About yeah, no, I do think that would be. I do think that that would be um, important um, to look at. And that's another thing that's kind of cool about this survey is it gives us, like I said, this is a, you know, a starting place yes, yes. to do more, more specialized research and more you know, theory-driven research, get a sense of what's going on. Um, because it's easy, you, know, you see a lot of commentary of like criticizing college students. And you know, I should be clear, like when, our goal with this survey isn't to criticize college students. In a lot of ways, I think it's to criticize us. Like when I say us, I mean older, the people that are older, because, you know, young people didn't build the culture. Young people didn't, um, you know, they didn't craft the educational systems or the other institutions um, that might be making people more cynical. Um, they didn't, you know, like the helicopter parenting issue that people like Jonathan Haidt ha, 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 have talked about. Um, they didn't do those things. You know, back in several years ago, I wrote an article for the New York Times on um, on other research showing that young people are less, perhaps less trusting and less, you know, less oriented towards freedom, less supportive of the the importance of democracy and things like that. And I closed that essay by saying, like, they didn't, you know, this isn't just a pick on young people because they didn't, you know, they didn't create this, the culture. Um, and so I, th I think that's important, too. And this, again, this also isn't to take responsibility away or agency away from them. But the point being, this isn't just a young person problem. We have to look, we have to interrogate, like, what it is, what it is going on in our society is it something that, like I said before, like it's just affluence, and so that's a challenge. Um, and if that's the case, then I think that that's something we should, you know, we should take on because if you know, if if it's the case that by being by virtue of being a rich, highly individualistic, free society, it creates certain vulnerabilities that might make certain people more pessimistic or nihilistic or. Um, then we should we should be aware of that because you know other otherwise we run the risk of losing what we've gained. Yeah, uh, the, the the thing that you said about uh, the the newer generations, um, yeah, it's very important that we don't fall into the pattern of seeing you know throughout human history every generation felt right. that the people who were coming after them were somehow more damaged and less worthy and so right. forth. That's part of human nature. Uh, and we shouldn't fall into that trap and 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 be 
too critical of, of the youth. Uh, what are the chances that you could put these same questions to a representative sample of uh, non-college Americans just to see what are these attitudes and then to compare whether we are seeing, you know, it could give us interesting insights. Does, 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 yeah. does education actually make you more uh, pessimistic or more optimistic? Is, right. is, that, is, that a, is that a study that you could conduct? Yeah, definitely. And I do think that's an important, that is an important study, I think, um, to, that would help us start to get more at, because right now, you, you, you know, what, what you're revealing is right now we're looking exclusively at a sample of, of college students, which we did on purpose, of course, because um, we wanted to know what's going on on, on college campuses. And, but that, but that does, the, the challenge to that is we don't even have a sample of other young people their age who aren't students, college right. students. And we also don't have a sample of, of, um, of other age groups. Uh, and so, yeah, I think those are important, important pieces to it. Um, because I, there are other surveys, you know, like I talked about that New York Times article I wrote, there are other surveys that do not speak exactly to these issues, but certainly suggest that younger people are facing some vulnerabilities, um, more so than older people, like the, like loneliness, like social disconnection and loneliness, perhaps. Um, and so maybe there are some unique challenges that are not unique, but are you know felt more across different age groups. Um, and so yeah, connecting it to that, uh, I think is important. But like I said, I mean, I started with the bias that to be a college student in America is like a great opportunity and um, that the majority of people don't have, and certainly the vast majority of people on the planet. And so to me, like I started from the baseline, this should be the cheery bunch, <laughs> but it could be, you know, like, like we've been talking about, it could be the opposite, right? It could be, well, no, like the, the most privileged might be the most sensitive to harm um, and the most, um, you know, the most vulnerable in some, in, in, in some regards. And it's certainly true if you look at research on like my area, meaning in life, people in poorer, and I know we've, you and I have talked about this before, um, people in poorer countries report greater meaning in life than people in richer countries. Um, and so there is, an again, I think this speaks to this issue that we need to confront, like for those of us who want to defend the, you know, the the kind of liberal tradition, classical liberal tradition, and in a free society, um, we have to recognize that there might be certain vulnerabilities that that are created out of this yeah. from success, right? But conversely, you also find that people in richer countries are happier than right. people in poorer countries, right? So there is that weird uh, mismatch where people in rich countries feel that they lack meaning but are happy <laughs> right. and on the other hand people in poor countries they have a lot of meaning but feel unhappy so but that we can we can take right. that up in a in a follow-up conversation i thought um in the time that we have left i want to be respectful of your time uh let's talk about section three and economics and entrepreneurship uh this is this is absolutely fascinating to me, the, the attitudes to socialism, to capitalism. So can you give us the highlights and maybe we can uh, end on this section? Yeah, so we, we, we started with by asking questions specifically about entrepreneurship. Um, you know, we, 
again, part of our institute's mission is to champion, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation. And, you know, so we are curious, one, do people even, do college students, how many of them want to start a business? And, you know, not very, you know, this isn't probably that surprising, but do you currently have plans to start a business? Only 17% of students said yes. So the majority of students aren't planning to be entrepreneurs. But then what we were really interested in is um, to what extent do they feel feel like their college education has prepared them for for entrepreneurship? And which again is could be another area to target. It's like, well, is this something that we can do something about? And so we asked, have the classes or other activities you've participated in during college inspired you to consider starting a business? And only a quarter of students said yes. Conservatives were more likely than than liberals to say to say yes, but still it was a minority. Um, and um, then we asked them, do you think the classes or other activities you participated in in college have helped you develop the skills you would need to successfully start a business? And only 39% of students say yes. So um, that's just before, you know, before getting into the specific economic worldviews, the majority of students don't seem to feel inspired to start a business or feel equipped to start a business. And, you know, that isn't to say that college student, you know, that, I mean, there's lots of things college prepares you for. It's not necessarily like just for entrepreneurship, right? But um, to the extent that that's something that people are, are interested in with concerns about decreased business dynamism, maybe um, that, you know, that's, that's highlights that there might be areas to work on to make students, you know, feel more capable of, uh, of being entrepreneurs. Um, but then, as you noted, we, you know, we asked questions. Oh, well, by the way, by the way, by the way, just just to emphasize, you know, because a lot of viewers may think, oh, well, you know, innovation and entrepreneurship, I don't really care about it. But that that is actually the essence of human progress. Uh, quite literally, uh, progress is about innovation, um, right. you, um, you know, and uh, it, it's actually very important. Uh, whether people feel that they are going to go into the business as opposed to, for example, uh, seeking a, a, a job or a career in, 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 the, in the public sector or, or the civil service. Uh, the right. more entrepreneurs you have, the more likely it is that you are going to come up with somebody like Steve Jobs or, or Jeff Bezos or um, uh, countless other people who have made uh, lives, uh, our lives better. So um, innovation is very important. It's the essence of progress. And uh, it's yeah. very discouraging to see that so few students are, are actually thinking about being entrepreneurs. That's true. But the, it, definitely true. And the good news, though, is um, we also ask students about their views of entrepreneurs. And it does seem like the majority of students seem to understand that entrepreneurs are important. So we asked them, entrepreneurs have an, do entrepreneurs have an important role to play in solving national and global problems? Um, the majority said yes, um, 67%. Wow. And again, this was similar across political groups. Um, so the majority of liberals, in fact, liberal students actually were more likely to agree, um, but they weren't significantly different. Um, but so most students seem to think that entrepreneurs help. And we asked entrepreneurs can have a positive impact on the quality of our lives. The vast majority said yes, um, in order to develop innovative and creative solutions to current and future societal problems. We need more entrepreneurs. Again, the majority, 60% of students agree with that. So uh, on a positive side, it does seem like 
even though students themselves aren't necessarily inspired to be entrepreneurs or don't feel like they're learning to be, they have positive attitudes about entrepreneurs, which is something to work with. So like the point you made that entrepreneurs are really, really important. Um, I think this is a good starting point that, you know, colleges can say, well, it seems like students agree that entrepreneurs are really important. They just personally don't feel like they're the ones who yeah. are going to do it. And so that's, but that's something to work with. It'd be harder if they had negative views of entrepreneurs to convince them. So it seems to me that that's a space to work with and to say, well, maybe we can do more um, in our institutions to inspire students to, to themselves think, you know, that they're, you know, they're capable of doing that. Um, so I think that that's, again, I'm trying to find the, you know, the positive, <laughs> the silver yeah, lining. No, I mean, that, that's very important. And I can't wait to discuss with you the, the, the last segment, which is capitalism and socialism. And the reason why I'm, I'm deliberately preempting what you are about to say is the following. Whether entrepreneurs succeed in creating innovations that improve society is of course very much dependent on the economic system with which, within which those entrepreneurs function. So assuming that there is a normal bell curve distribution of entrepreneurship amongst all populations, uh -huh. you would expect that people in Russia during the Soviet Union times or people in Czechoslovakia under communism or Poland or Hungary or East Germany um, had the same potential for entrepreneurship and improvement of, of humanity as people in West Germany, United States, France, United Kingdom, etc. But that's not what happened. The communist society stagnated precisely because all those individuals who could have become entrepreneurs and innovators were not allowed to see their ideas succeed in the marketplace. In other words, an entrepreneur needs to exist within a free market system so that good ideas rise to the top and bad ideas sink to the bottom. Whereas under socialism, um, there is no way of determining what ideas are good, what ideas are bad, whether this uh, innovation is actually worthwhile or not. So with that sort of, um, um, with that background, let me ask you about your findings on socialism and capitalism. Right. Um, no, I, that, that's an excellent point. I, I agree 100% with that. So there, you know, you see polls like from Gallup and other organizations that suggest students are, or young people, I should say, um, are more favorable towards socialism than, than, than capitalism. But, um, you know, John and I were working on this, and John's an economist, so this is, you know, I've already noted I'm a psychologist. John, my co-author, is an economist. So he's, you know, he's definitely better, um, you know, more knowledgeable of, of this area. But, you know, he made the point that, well, it's easy for students to say they're for socialism or whatever, but what do they need by that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we couldn't really find any evidence out there getting at how are students defining or how are just young people in general? We're focused on students, of course. How are they defining these terms? And so we asked them. Um, so we, 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 we essentially gave them an option. We said capitalism is best defined as either an economic system in which property is privately owned, exchange is voluntary, production and pricing of goods are determined by market forces. So we gave them a free market capitalism definition or an economic system in which corporations utilize grants, special tax breaks, political connections, and special rules that favor them over 
competitors to earn profits. So, or a crony capitalism, because our suspicion was, well, when people are bringing to mind, you know, when people, their attitudes about these things, they might be defining, thinking about different example versions of them. Right. And what we found in that is that the majority of, um, so this is, I guess, some, some good news, right? 55% of students, this is, it's a slight majority, but the majority of students um, use a free market definition. Um, but there is differences politically, right? So liberal, liberal and liberal leaning students are more likely to use a crony capitalism definition. And conservative and conservative leaning students are more likely to use a free market definition. So, um, you know, among liberal students, 45% use a um, free market definition and 55%. So there's still sizable portions in each group use a crony capitalism definition. Among conservatives, 70% um, use free market and 30% use crony capitalism. So there is some, you know, there is some variability here, but that might matter a lot for how, what they think about capitalism, right? So then we ask them, based on your definition of capitalism, do you have a positive, negative, or neutral view? And only 24% of students overall said they have a positive view uh, of capitalism. 44% said negative, and um, the remaining 32% said neutral. Of course, that varied by political ideology, whereas um, only 9% of liberal students have a positive view of capitalism, whereas 52%, which is still, you know, just over half of, only just over half of conservatives have a positive view of capitalism. But then, so that, so you might be thinking, I'm guessing you're thinking, okay, well, how does that connect to their definitions of capitalism, right? Because we are looking at political versus liberal, but what about their definitions? So we looked, so we looked at, analyzed the data that way too. So for those who define capitalism as the free market version, right, 42% have a positive view. So even when you look at like the what I would consider the you know the best definition, right, the free market definition, it's still a minority of students who have a positive view. Um, and that but again that varies by politics, right? So among conservatives who have a free market view definition of capitalism, 73% of them have a positive view. Um, whereas among liberals who use a free market definition, only 19% mm -hmm. um, have a positive view. So it changes things, obviously, how they, you know, their definitions. But even still, I think that there's, <laughs> you know, there, there's, some, there's some concern because even using what you might say is the best definition of capitalism, which is not you know not the corrupt crony version, but the you know free market, um, you know only you know less than twenty percent of liberal students view it positively, whereas seventy three percent of of conservative students. Um, so then, what about the people who define it as 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 crony capitalism, and who use the crony capitalism definition? Not surprisingly, nearly no one has a positive view of capitalism if they use that definition. It's like 1% of liberals and only 4% of conservatives. So again, if we're looking for positive, you know, silver linings here, I think it's fair to say that um, 
to the extent that people are bringing to mind a, a crony a crony capitalism definition when they think of capitalism, no one likes it. Right. Yeah, so so this is the main challenge uh, as far as I can see. Um, and it is this. When people, regardless of whether they are conservatives or liberals, but it's mostly liberals, but conservatives as well, when they ask for government to do more, to have more regulations, more laws, um, uh, more licensing, etc., in order to quote unquote tame the excesses of the market, they are of course creating a a biosphere uh, for cronyism to take place. Every time you put a person in charge of getting a license or a permit or whatever, you are increasing the chances that uh, that decision will be made not on market criteria, but on personal connections and things like that. So clearly it is in, I mean, the, the global evidence is self-evident. It is where the markets are most regulated and most heavily dependent on regulations and licenses that um, uh, that corruption is at its highest because then it's not the, the impersonal market forces but very personal politicians and bureaucrats who are actually regulating the market so the the great paradox is that by asking for more government intervention um, you are actually creating the crony capitalism that people then complain about and right. nobody likes um, and it's very difficult to explain to people is that if you want what you call the best definition of capitalism, meaning one where the market forces operate, you actually have to get government out of it because that way you're also getting human beings out of regulation and capitalism. You are getting, uh, you, you, you are getting away from corruption. And uh, this is something that is extremely difficult to, to convince people over. Um, right. You know, a, a, a question that could be asked maybe in a follow-up survey would be, if if a constitutional amendment passed tomorrow uh, in the United States that government cannot interfere in the economy in any way, would we get more lobbyists on K Street or fewer lobbyists on K Street? Uh, you know, to see if people make this mental connection between yeah. government regulation of the economy and cronyism. But forgive me, I hijacked the interview. <laughs> no, no, that's yeah, no, that would be. You're giving us good ideas for, for follow-up. <laughs> I mean, there's free. so many. Yeah. For free. <laughs> for free, right? There are, well, I already told you. I already took some ideas from you on the progress. Good, good, good. Progress um, stuff. But yeah. So, I mean, and then, you know, so let you know, let me bring up this other question, too, that, that I think connects back to speaking of progress, connects these, these, these different areas. So we also, um, you know, ask them if capitalism can help solve major challenges such as climate change and poverty. And, um, you know, we didn't get a lot of, uh, a lot of agreement. Only 28% of students um, strongly agreed or agreed or somewhat agreed, you know, we're in the agreement categories. Um, conservatives were more likely to um, than, than liberals, but it was still not even a majority of conservatives. So I think that's another, um, that's another challenge that, that goes along with what, what you're saying, because I think so not only might people be bringing a crony capitalism definition to mind, which has this ironic effect, as you said, of of, of um, giving them a negative attitude, which could make them actually want to 
impose more, get more government involved, right? So it's almost like self-fulfilling prophecy. Not only that, but if people don't see capitalism as something that can help be helpful, you know, another way to think about it is, and we didn't ask this, but if people are thinking, well, capitalism's fine, but it's mainly about the self, right? It's mainly about people getting rich or um, if people don't see it as something that contributes to human progress, um, then that's a challenge. I think that's a challenge as well. Um, so they might have a be using um, a bad definition, or at least a definition that they um, th- that they see as a, so maybe they just see that as more associated with reality. For like what you for the reasons you're saying, maybe they just say, "Well, this is what's happening in our society. Like the government is." picking winners and losers and and i do think you're right that this even though this happens more you know it's typically more people on the left who want bigger government with the rise of you do see this on the right too and with the rise of populism i don't know what you you know if you've been observing that or what your thoughts are on this you probably know more than i do well, but certainly, uh, I think certainly uh, there is something to it. I mean, conservatives for the longest time were talking about, you know, the American worker can take on any competition in the world. We are so productive, so hardworking, right. so smart that we can do it. And But that was the story of the 1980s and the 1990s. Uh, by the time of the most recent uh, spell of, uh, of populism, basically, it's all about protecting the American worker from international competition right. and various... Uh, foreign uh, trade practices uh, and that obviously can only be done by government so right. um, so you have basically the rise of protectionism and uh, on, on both left and right now uh, which companies you are going to protect which workers you're going to protect well politicians decide that and politicians can be influenced and they can be bribed and 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 so forth right. so so that's very uh, discouraging obviously Right. Yeah, I think but, so. but 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 drawing this link is is just almost impossible. I mean, people people have right. been trying to do it for decades and we don't seem to be succeeding. It's, it's as though um, the, the the median voter cannot connect those two dots, corruption and government involvement in the economy. It just doesn't fit. Right. And, you know, and the good news is when we break it down. So just a second ago, I was saying that, you know, the you know, People, the students aren't very positive about capitalism's ability to help solve these problems. Now, if we break it down by how they define it, the situation does get a little bit better. Not, you know, it doesn't get great by any means, but for students who use a free market definition of capitalism, more of them think that capitalism can help solve these problems. So it's 42% as opposed to the 28% overall I mentioned before agree that they can do that but if they for those who use a crony capitalism definition only 10 percent think that capitalism can help solve these problems so people do seem to at least partially be making these connections that the crony capitalism isn't isn't good and it's not going to be really they don't see it as particularly helpful um for society um but then even use even in the best case, even if you use like the, the, the free market definition, um, there still seems to be a lot of um, pessimism or uncertainty about um, about the role of, of markets and in, in advancing human progress. Well, once again, uh, the study in question is the 2021 American College student 
Freedom, Progress and Flourishing Survey, uh, which is published by the Chali Center um, at the North Dakota State University. And the authors of this particular survey are John Bitson, uh, Dr. John Bitson, and also Clay Routledge, whom I was very privileged to talk to today. Clay, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, these findings are absolutely fascinating. We will be linking to the study, obviously, uh, with the video and um, uh, whatever else. Um, please keep us in mind uh, in your future efforts so that we can, um, um, you know, be aware of your work, but also so that we can promote it. Uh, and I wish you all the best with your endeavors. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marion. I appreciate you having me on. And yeah, I would encourage anyone if they're interested in what we talked about to definitely go look at the survey you linked because believe it or not, because it seems like we covered a lot. We only, you know, we only got into a small part. There's a lot of other questions in, in the survey and a lot of other interesting findings. So I'd encourage people to check it out. And we, our plan is to do this annually. This was our first one. So you know, hopefully year after year, we'll be able to build on this, maybe ask some different or some more questions, some of the questions you suggested, perhaps. And um, with the goal of, you know, ultimately, our goal is because we want to make, you know, we want to make um, academia better. We want to improve, want to improve upon it. So um, hopefully this is a step in that direction. Let me echo everything you said. Uh, one of the things we didn't get into uh, for questions of time because of because of shortness of time was national pride and the attitude of students to the United States uh, and so forth. So uh, please go and check out the study. It is much richer than what we could uh, have tackled in this interview. But uh, thank you very much. Thank See you, man. you soon. Yep. All the best.